quick disclaimer, the views and opinions expressed in this podcast are provided for informational purposes only and should not be construed as an offer to buy or sell any securities or to make or consider any investment or course of action. For more information, go to bestevershow.com. Again, you have to spread the cost out of water, sewers, streets, turning lanes, all of those things on top of building costs. There's a magic number in there that's spread out over 180 units. A site would be great at 180 units, but at 100 units, it doesn't work. So you have to kind of get to the bottom of all of those things. Welcome to the Best Ever Show, the world's longest running daily commercial real estate podcast. Our hosts interview commercial real estate experts every day to get you the best advice ever with none of the fluffy stuff. Hello, best ever listeners. Welcome to the best real estate investing advice ever show. I'm Ash Patel and I'm with today's guest, Seth Teagle. Seth is joining us from Columbus, Ohio. He is a return guest on the Joe Fairless best ever commercial real estate podcast. He was on episode number 2,617, growing from 50 units to over 2,000 doors. Seth is the CEO of the Stream Group, a commercial real estate firm that specializes in multifamily and development. Seth's portfolio consists of multifamily and ground up development projects. Seth, thank you for joining us and how are you? Thanks for having me, Ash. Happy to be here. It's our pleasure. Seth, give the best ever listeners a little bit about your background and what you're focused on now. Original background, I was a firefighter paramedic for 20 plus years. Got into real estate 2014, 2015-ish. Realized that in order to get the time freedom that I wanted, that was the best route for me to go. So I worked with somebody for about a year or so, year and a half managing their portfolio and jumped in on a 50-unit apartment building. Back then, executed that plan, refied, made over a million dollars proceeds, bought my second one and scaled from there to where we're at today, which is doing value-add multifamily really since then. But in the last few years, we've gotten more and more into development and that's what we're primarily working on right now. Seth, you're also a fellow podcast host. Yes. It's like a hybrid of, of social media and great conversations with folks. So I'm not as well put together as you guys, but it accomplishes what I want. Good. All right. So what are you working on now? You've got a tremendous portfolio of multifamily. Are you still buying apartments? We would if we could find any that would pencil right now. I think that's the biggest thing. Even last year, we were really struggling to find anything that would work. So we've had development in our portfolio before doing ground up. There's three partners that are in the company now, and one of them comes with a really strong ground up development background. So we've been looking for opportunity for that. And obviously development takes a lot longer to, to plan. So over the last two years, We've been planning a couple of larger sites and we're about to break ground on them at the beginning of the year. So it's really exciting stuff. And that's the big stuff that we have going right now. Is it multifamily that you're developing? One of the sites is in Heath, Ohio, which is about 25, 30 minutes from Columbus. And it is 150 acres that we had annexed and then we had it parceled into single family homes. So there's a large chunk, about 105 of the acres is single family homes. There's about 20 acres or so that's assisted living And then the remainder is going to be 180 units of multifamily, which ultimately for us was what we wanted to retain was the multifamily site. So while we were working on that deal, obviously Intel announced they were building here and things kind of went crazy. So right now we're in the process of selling off everything on that development site that's not multifamily. And then we'll break ground on those 180 units in early 24. What does it mean that you annex the land? Great question. In Ohio, there's villages, there's cities, and there's townships. And if you live in a township and your borders border a city, the city at any time can basically say, hey, we want 
that land and they can absorb it and they can take it over and they have the right to be able to do that. And townships can't say no. In this situation, this was 150 acres that were all congruent with the border of Heath. So we went to the city and said, hey, look, this would be a great site to develop. They agreed. We were able to get a TIF, which is a tax incentive built into this. They said we would like to see residential multifamily in this assisted living chunk. So we agreed to that layout. And in order to get utilities to the site, which were across the street, they had to take control of the land. So they went through the formal process with the county and the municipalities to basically take that land from the township. And now it's within the city limits. And now we can provide water and sewer to the site. Are you bringing all the utilities, all the entitlements to the land? Yeah, it's fully entitled right now. And then the only thing, we haven't done any horizontal moving of water and sewer. But like I said, the site was great because it was across the street. And the only reason I couldn't make that short jump was because of the annexation process. So it took a long time to get through that. But now that the city owns the land or owns the boundary, the boundary of the city was moved out, they're able to move and put water and sewer there. How long did that process take? I would say probably a year and a half from the start of this being an idea all the way to closing. Our due diligence was dependent on the annexation going through, the tax incentives being granted, and then the plans being approved by the city. So we worked through all of that while we still had the project in contract. And then as soon as we knew that that was all going to be approved, we closed on the land. There's always oppositions when cities decide to do anything. Who were the people opposing this? Oh, that's another great statement. A lot of the people that live around it, they don't really want to have 260 single family homes, 180 apartments and 160 condos or assisted living in their backyard because they're looking at this beautiful farm ground. In Ohio, it's either soybean or corn. So there's some opposition there. But I think that the city is really a big advocate for it because that end of the city needs higher water pressure. So part of the TIF agreement was we were going to put a water tower on the site. And because we allowed the city to put that water tower there at no cost to them, then they gave us a really big tax incentive to upgrade the water systems, the sewer, all that kind of stuff. So the traditional neighbors, civilian may not like it because it's encroaching on their beautiful farmland that they got to look at. But overall, for the city, it's a great win for them. And so they've been really supportive and excited to get the project up and running. Did you acquire this land from one farmer? We did. The entire property, which I think part of the hardest thing to find with development are sites that actually work. We probably look at 15 to 20 to find one that might work. And then we're always, why should we not buy this? And there's a various reasons as we dig into it, but he owned it all. And it really worked for us because in Ohio, you have to have so many square feet of border against the city for them to be able to annex it without getting multiple people to approve it. So the edge of this property that touched the city of Heath, we didn't have to get anybody else's opinion or votes or signatures. We could just say, Hey, we want to be annexed. And then they were able to take it over. The multifamily, when do you break ground on that? Right now we're scheduled for February of 24, weather dependent, obviously on snow and ice and whatnot, but sometime early 24. Awesome. And then you're developing flex space somewhere. Tell me more about that. Again, we were director seller on this, a local guy that I had met once before, and I was actually walking out of a coffee shop and he grabbed me and was like, hey, we need to talk. And he owned about 120 acres, two miles from the Intel site. And I was very interested in discussing that with him. He had gotten the zoning change to general business from agricultural, which again, that's half the battle when you're trying to develop is getting the zoning changed or getting it rezoned. So he already had that in place. In his mid-60s, he's looking to exit. He paid $2 million for the site 10 years ago. He'll do very, very well on the exit, but there's just a ton of meat on the bone for us to come in. 
He's got a successful flex space. He calls it self-storage, but it's truly like a flex space business park that he has. And our plan is to come in and triple that to go from 50,000 to 150,000 square feet. And then that'll basically leave a hundred acres remaining that we're putting the entitlements and the plan together for somebody much bigger than us to come in, Walmart, Lowe's, Menards, some big player like that to come in and buy the remaining land and build whatever they want there. What was the purchase for this land? We're going to be paying 16 million on this one all in. We should have closed in 23, but for tax purposes, we pushed the closing out to 2024. So when the taxes get reassessed, they won't actually be able to get us to pay anything new until 2026. So if we would have closed in 23, we would have had to start paying in 25 if they reassessed us. But we got the seller to allow us to go into 2024. So then we basically gave us ourselves a whole extra year to get everything up and running. Brilliant move. So the $16 million, are you getting a loan for that? Are you raising capital? It's both. Obviously, giving leverage is cheaper than raising all of the money. But both of these projects have allowed us to change our structure from traditional syndication to more of a fund model. And then these are going to be the core assets in each of the funds. So we have a fund now for ground up multifamily and then for raw land development. This flex space is going to be the core asset going into that fund. The multifamily, once we sell off the other land that I just discussed at Heath, that will be the core asset for the multifamily fund. And then, yeah, it'll be 506C investors and we can take money at any time, which was one of the big problems we had with syndication was I would talk to people and we would have investors that wanted to do business with us, but I had to wait for us to get a deal. And sometimes that's three months, six months, and people change their mind or they move on to other things and you just never really know. So we wanted to create a situation where we could always be taking capital. So that's kind of what we switched to for these projects. Taking capital from investors, even if you don't have a deal, does it just sit in your fund? Great question. Yes, it does. And you'd think, well, why would somebody want to send me $100,000 today when they could go put it in a money market account or they could go do something else that's paying 4 to 5%? Well, what we did was we went to a couple different banks. We negotiated interest rates on idle money. So we put deposit accounts with them. They basically guaranteed us 5.5% interest for three years on idle money. So our initial thing is basically like, if you wire me $100,000 tomorrow, it's going to earn 6% until we deploy it. And then once we deploy it, it's going to actually be earning what the OM that we're creating, what the actual investment's going to do. It, it will make that money, which will obviously go up. And the returns are much higher with developments due to risk. But that's how we're taking idle money right now is sticking it into the high yield accounts. Great way to take advantage of these high rates. But I'm going to nitpick for a second. You said the bank is giving you five and a half percent and you're giving investors six. Are you making yes. up that half point difference? If you want to consider holding costs, it's all part of the analysis. When we ran everything through underwriting, we just wrapped it into the overall cost of the project. And there's so much meat on the bone for both of these that it's not even a cost to the fund itself. When interest rates on money market accounts were a half a percent, it was a lot easier. So now we're trying to come up with different ways that you can give somebody a high return and beat what else is out there. I guess in this scenario too, we don't anticipate holding the money for a long period of time idle because we already have the projects that are ready to break ground. Seth, if I'm an investor that's having a conversation with you, obviously one of the questions is, how long does the money sit there idle? And you've got a lot of great things in the works. When do I start getting returns on my money? 
both of these projects, the way that we underwrote them were going to be immediately. So let's say you invested in January, then the end of Q1, you should get a re return. And what are the returns? Are they preferred returns and then a split at the end? Yeah, you're buying shares of the fund itself. So on a cellular level, it's a little bit different. But yeah, traditionally, it's, it's still going to be a 70-30 split. I actually think the fund is 80-20 in this case, both of these. And then you're getting a return based on whatever equity you put in. The structure is no different really than the syndication model, but we're able to take money at all the time. And then, like I said, the overall return will be much higher in the 30% range versus the traditional syndication, which is 15 to 18% is what I'm seeing right now if people are putting stuff out. Yeah, that's a great point. The flex space buildings, what are they right now? Can you describe them? They're, I guess, an easiest form if you know what a pole barn is. That's what it reminds me of. You know, he's a construction guy that built these himself with his crew. They're class A product. Some of them are heated and cooled. They all have electric. They all have gas. And some of them have water bathrooms like built into them. So they're actually small offices. A lot of the tenants that he has right now, he's renting them out as if they're their storage. But really what they are is if you're an electrician, you're a plumber, you're some kind of contractor, you're a small business owner, you could rent a space there, have your own bathroom, have a small office, and then have a large, I'd have to look and see what the square footage is on a unit. But I always tell people, if you think of one that you could pull a motorhome into or a large boat or something like that, people store heavy equipment there, people are running their plumbing businesses and a lot of contractors that are running out of that right now. So the doors are 20 feet high. They're big spaces. But the way that he built them, we would not continue. We're looking at an institutional model to always looking at the exits, the type of construction, the way they're constructed. We are trying to build them out to where when we go to sell, they would be considered institutional grade. What qualifies for institutional grade? Well, obviously the pole barn style is not their favorite. We had some construction folks out and they felt that the way that he built them, they're all made out of metal and they're very well put together. But mainly what we see is a lot of institutional grade likes brick and mortar or more like concrete block where it's like almost bomb proof. Whether it's the ends are the only thing that's masonry or if it's the whole front is masonry, just a specific way that a lot of the institutional buyers, that we, at least the research we've done, this is the product that they look for. So that's kind of what we're trying to gear as we expand on what he's already done. That's what we're going to try to build out there. Yeah. You want to dress it up a little bit and municipalities love that as well versus just metal buildings. And that's the interesting thing. So working with the municipality, they have a whole economic development plan they put together last year. So they're very specific on the types of buildings, the types of signage. They have a vision for that area. So that goes back to the targeting land is we target land that's already in those kind of pre-approved areas. So the zoning today could be agriculture, but if you go to the economic development plan that the township has approved or the city, you can look on there. And so these areas they say in the next five years are going to be developed. And then here's what they would approve. So then we start honing in on those chunks of land because it's just much easier to, to swim in that direction versus trying to go against them and, and fight them. And that's what you don't want to do, right? Is buy a piece of land that you can't get it zoned what you need. And then I wouldn't say it's worthless, but it's definitely not a good move on that part. So we really do part of our due diligence. Yeah. You want the city on board for sure. We'll get back to the show with first some sponsors I'm confident you'll find value in learning more about. Deciding how to invest your capital is more challenging than ever. That's why it's never been more important to partner with a company with a solid track record and that has thrived through various economic cycles. Companies like BAM Capital. BAM Capital is a trusted multifamily syndicator that has delivered a historical average of over 35% IRR 
with an average hold period of three and a half years. BAM Capital's never missed a preferred payment, never lost an LP's investment, and never called capital past the subscription amount. BAM Capital is currently raising capital for a fund designed for accredited investors targeting a 15 to 20% IRR and a 2 to 2.5x equity multiple to its investors over a three to five year hold period. If you're an accredited investor and you want to learn more about multifamily investment opportunities with BAM Capital, visit capital.thebamcompanies.com. Again, that's capital.thebamcompanies.com. Have you looked at what your build costs would be for this expansion? Right now, the numbers we're getting back is about $65 a square foot. Yeah, I think that's a great price on the low side for sure, because the lowest I've seen recently is 60 all the way up to 100 plus, right? So that's incredible. And when you're building these for $65 a square foot, will it have plumbing, HVAC? Yeah, so right now the plan, we're on the early phases of, of working it out with the architects. But the goal is to continue to have gas, water, and sewer there. I'm sorry, not sewer, but sewer is coming to the site, but he has septic there now. And then he has water on the site with existing parcels as well, which is fine for what he has there. But we will have water and sewer to the site in the next couple of years. So like I said, our plan right now is plumb everything as if it's going to have water and sewer there. And once it does, then we can make the conversion. Seth, how high will the ceilings be in the expansion? How large will the bay doors be? Right now, we're looking at 25 feet for the ceilings and then roughly 20 feet, but I could be misspeaking. It's like 20 or 21 feet. There's a specific metric on the truck size that you could back in. I can't think of it off the top of my head, but it's in the 20-foot range, which is kind of like standard. So that's what we're shooting for. And again, right now, he has only that on some of these where we would put that in a man door on every unit. So the ones that he has existing already, we've already earmarked a spot on the building where we could put a man door on each one because a lot of folks, especially if you're heating and cooling the space, you don't want to have that door be the only way you can go in and out. And what will you get price per square foot for rent? Oh, that's a good question. I'd have to refer to Tim who does all my underwriting of the financial side. I know that he's getting about 2000 a door right now. So I think we've looked at 2500 a door. So my guess is you're going to be somewhere in the 12 to $18 range, right? Let's just say an average of 15 and that's probably low for what you have. So if you think about it, four years pays the $65 per square foot cost that it takes to build, right? When you compare that to retail, retail can be $200 per foot new construction, and you're probably getting $18, $20 a square foot. So the parallels here are so much in favor for flex space, which is why it's so hot. It's also so much in demand. A couple of suggestions there. Parking near the flex space building can be rented out for a premium because somebody that owns, let's say an HVAC company, they may have idle vans that are sitting there and they want to be behind your secured fence and they're willing to pay top dollar for the ability to park trailers or vans or trucks on that site. So if you can have a fair amount of just either gravel or asphalt pavement that you can rent out as parking. That's a huge moneymaker for very little cost. Having pass-throughs is also nice. So if somebody's got a 20-foot trailer, they would love to pull into their space, load it up, but then backing out is a challenge, right? So having a pass-through can certainly attract other tenants, command a higher price. 
Yeah, that's a great observation. I, I don't know that I've even thought of that. But the beautiful part about this is that he's occupying, I want to say, around eight acres of a 120-acre site. So we have a lot of room to be able to do different things. And I think that that's part of the value add for us. All of his roads are gravel. He doesn't have a lot of the features that you've talked about. There's a lot of ways for us to upgrade what he already has by putting in sidewalks, different things. There's, like you said, parking. But then as we move forward and we go to, to triple the, what he has, that's what we're really digging into right now with architecture and engineering and all those folks is what is the best thing to put on the site. And those are some great things to consider because I don't think anybody's mentioned drive-through bays. Yeah. I mean, you've got an amazing amount of land. Sky's the limit for you guys, man. This was a great find. So the other thing is having 25 foot ceilings, have you done assessments on that? Is that necessary? Because Um, a a semi-trailer can get into a 14 foot bay door. Motorhomes, they can fit under 14 foot. Most bridges on interstates are 14 feet clear. That is definitely interesting. And I'll talk to the group that's putting the plans together because we basically base it off of what he already has. But like I said, his is kind of like this hodgepodge, mom and pop. He's always been a storage guy and he built these. So there's no rhyme or reason really to even building size. You know, not every building is the same. There's no uniformity. And that's what we're looking to change. So that's something that I'll have to take back to the team and say, hey, look, maybe the ceilings don't need to be as high. And so I think that that's definitely interesting. I'll see if anybody's looked into that. Yeah, I would just do a cost comparison. But I know that going from a 14 to a 20-foot door is a tremendous price difference, not to mention the opener that has to be upgraded as well. Mm-hmm. So a lot of new builds for Flex are 14-foot bay door, 16-foot ceilings. Interesting. And yeah, when, when you, note of that. Yeah, when you go over 20, that's when they have pallet racks and forklifts and 2000 square foot space. I don't foresee somebody with forklifts and the need for that kind of storage. If that's the case, they're going to go rent a warehouse somewhere, right? Yeah. And it's interesting you say that because the comparison properties that's in Columbus that we rented space when we first started doing vertically integrated and we're doing the construction on the multifamily, we rented space from something that's similar to what we were talking about putting together here. And as we're talking and I'm thinking about this, I'm like, well, yeah, none of their bay doors were that high. They were tall. Now you did have people that had forklifts, all the driveways and the roads were concrete and you had people kind of zipping all over in that, but none of the units themselves were that tall. So it's interesting that you said that. And I'll talk to our architectural group and see what they're looking at. But that's one thing I like about development is that I don't have to know everything. The, the architects you work with, the engineers, even the construction folks, most of the people that we deal with when we're renovating apartments you're too small for the big construction players, unless you're doing ground up and you're too big for the little guys, but you're too small for the big guys. So you're kind of stuck in this weird in between, which is what forced us to bring on a bunch of staff to do our own renovations because we found it was a lot more consistent and cost controlled by hiring people, giving them benefits. And we could just predict everything a lot better than it was continuing to use outside subcontractors and whatnot. Yeah. Um, That's a great philosophy. The last thing I'll tell you is, Having that 25-foot clear span ceiling, it's just a lot more space to condition as well, right? In terms of forklifts, certainly forklifts are valuable for HVAC companies, plumbing companies, moving heavy equipment. So I've seen a number of these flex space properties that have forklifts that are communal. Anybody can go and grab the forklift, use it, and put it back to charge when they're done. Yes. That's a great benefit. I'm sure you could charge more 
for your space by having that. Seth, with all of these projects that you have going on, are you still bullish on multifamily or do you think you're going to divert away from that? No, I still like multifamily. That's always been our bread and butter. That's what we know. But I think that we're also opportunists though. And we don't want to get so spread out where you're in five different asset classes and you're kind of all over the place. Up until this specific opportunity, everything's been multifamily. So I think that you can still make the numbers work. I think it's great, but I will say that I've sat through a couple of your classes as well. And some of the returns that you're getting on the things beyond multifamily are crazy. A lot less, I wouldn't say less work, but a lot less headache at times. And you're still in the return is the same or better in a lot of cases. So we're open-minded. The opportunity presents itself, which it kind of has in this case to explore something else. Maybe that's the right thing. And I think that everybody's kind of looking at that right now. If you're still trying to move forward in the real estate space, you kind of have to look at diversifying a little bit right now, because as you know, multifamily is just so saturated with everybody that that's the one thing that they go to or they think of, but there's a lot of meat on the bone and some of these other types of assets that this might be the first of many we do after this. The Columbus market is obviously on fire. Have you considered selling any of your holdings to some of these people that are willing to overpay? We've looked at it, but a lot of it comes back to what are we going to do with the money if we sell? then what are we going to go buy? Then we're going to be forced to go overpay because the only markets that we're really in are Central Ohio. Um, we're looking in Jacksonville, Florida, and then we've got ties to Salt Lake City, Utah. So we've looked out there at some different things, but we've really gone very deep in our market instead of expanding out. There's a lot of guys I know that are in five to eight different markets, but they live in cities or states where it doesn't make sense to invest. Central Ohio right now, even in Cincinnati where you're at, it's like the epicenter of all kinds of things happening right now with Intel coming to the largest chip manufacturing plant in the world when it's all said and done. So it's like to be at ground zero of this thing that I don't think anybody really even understands what's coming yet. But we've studied a lot of what happened in Chandler, Arizona after Intel came there and, and we're kind of doubling down on central Ohio. And But we're, again, being local, we're hanging out in the tertiary markets, secondary markets. We're doing a lot of direct to seller stuff that we're trying to stay under the radar from the bigger players You've got a great thing going. I love your philosophy. I love your outlook. The $16 million raise, how are you doing with that? We believe that we're going to get bank debt on the majority of it. So the fund itself is going to be a $25 million fund that's going to always be taking money for this project. If we can buy it all cash, great. But leveraged debt is going to be probably cheaper and better than having to raise $25 million in one shot or even $16 million to close. So the lending relationships that we have locally here We've got three of them that have given us verbal guarantees that they're interested in doing the lending and on the construction as well. But I'd say we're probably about a month away from having the solidified plan with engineer drawings, site plan utilities, having all of the feasibility stuff 100% dialed in. So like this site, we core drilled to make sure that the ground could support the weight of a Lowe's or a Walmart or some big tilt slab manufacturing warehouse or whatever could end up being there on the larger portion of the development. We wanted to make sure that we could actually put that there before we had any money go hard. Seth, a lot of people are considering becoming developers because it's so hard finding deals in multifamily. What's your advice to them? I think you make a lot of your money in the beginning when if you find the right land, you make sure that you follow all the steps. And I think where probably people get in trouble is they just go buy a piece of land and they don't understand that there's a bigger picture. And I think if you can understand what that bigger picture is and then buy the right land, that is a huge risk off the table. And then also longer due diligence periods. So a lot of people, they're used to buying apartments or small stuff. 
They're like 30 to 60, 90 days of due diligence where sometimes like a site I discussed in Heath where we had to get it annexed and then we had to get plan approval. We had it in contract for over a year. And part of the due diligence was that we would buy it if these things happen. So getting as many of those things off the table, and I guess part of that as well is density. So if you find a piece of land and you're like, I want to put apartments here and the city says, yeah, we'll let you put apartments here. Well, how many? Because again, you have to spread the cost out of water, sewer, streets, turning lanes, all of those things on top of building costs. There's a magic number in there that's spread out over 180 units. A site would be great at 180 units, but at 100 units, it doesn't work. So you have to kind of get to the bottom of all of those things. I'll give you a great example, two of them, actually. We had 30 acres in Blacklick or Gahanna area. So if you're familiar with Columbus, it's Jefferson Township. And we were going to develop that. And as we got into it, the township said half of this property has to remain green space. Well, that killed the deal for us because now the density was going to be so low. You're only going to be able to actually build on 15 acres. We had to walk away. Prime location, amazing chunk of land, but that one requirement just killed the deal for us. And then we looked at some site out by Marysville, which is northwest of Columbus, really great area. But the county was basically going to try to put a $3 million note against the development because they were going to have to upgrade their entire sewer plant because they were at max capacity. If we came in and put a ton more houses or apartments, they were going to have to rebuild or start over with the sewer plant. So the cost of that was going to get put on the development and that killed the deal. Interesting. What's been the hardest lesson learned? Multifamily, you get excited, you find the deal, you underwrite it, you get it in a contract. And I feel like it moves quicker and land development, it's a snail space. All the work and I feel like all the money is made in the front end, doing all the research and the due diligence and all of those things. From the time you break ground until it's complete, you get your certificate of occupancy and then you get it, it's apartments, you get it leased up and that's what moves quickly, but it's the lag time between finding a piece of land and getting through all the hoops to actually put a shovel in the dirt. Yeah. And you're relying on everybody else's timeline. Yes. Yeah. It's like watching paint dry. Awesome. (laughs) Seth, listen, I can't thank you enough for your time today. Come back. I want to hear how both of your deals progress. Love to have you back and thank you for your time today. Absolutely. Thank you for having me. Best ever listeners, thank you for joining us. If you enjoyed this episode, please leave us a five-star review. Share this podcast with someone you think can benefit from it. Also, follow, subscribe, and have a best ever day. Hi, best ever listeners. Joe Fairless here again. And one last thing before you go, would you like to receive a short weekly email with proven tips from experienced investors, free tools and resources, and a roundup of the week's most relevant news and best ever content? Well, if so... Join the community of nearly 15,000 commercial real estate passive and active investors who receive the best ever newsletter. Just go to bestevercre.com forward slash access and you'll get the very next one. I hope you enjoyed this episode. And as always, thank you for listening and have a best ever day.